Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, August the 6th, 2012, and this is episode 953 of the Survival Podcast. Folks, that means we are less than 50 episodes away from episode 1,000. Please participate in episode 1,000. Please send me your pictures for Revolution 2.0. It will be a link that will say be part of episode 1,000 and Revolution 2.0 in today's subject or today's show notes. And uh, if you check that out, it will give you all the instructions you need if you don't already know. But for call-ins for the uh, Revolution 2.0 and, uh, I mean, for uh, episode 1,000, do not use the Think line. The number for that I'll give out again on the air, 866-691-5353. Again, there will be a link in today's show notes. It says be part of episode 1,000 and Revolution 2.0 for details on that. Today is Monday, and since it's Monday, we're going to talk about the stuff that you've sent me in email to jack at the survival podcast.com with question for Jack, comment for Jack, story for Jack, subject for Jack, you name it, movie for Jack, video for Jack, audio for Jack, thought for Jack, I don't know, anything with one word and the word for Jack after it, it'll get into my screening process and I'll see if I can get you on the air. I get about, uh, on a slow day, a hundred emails like that, on a quick day, uh, 300 or more. So I can't possibly get them all on the air, but the ones I get a lot of get on the air when it's topical stuff. And then ones that are unique and different, I try to bring on the air from time to time. Calling in for the Friday shows, you probably have about a 30 to 40% chance of getting on the air versus about a 2% chance for these shows. I'm not saying not to send them in. Please keep them coming. I feel like I have my own personal research team, and it does help me out a lot. And I also share a lot of what you guys send me on Twitter and Facebook, even if I can't get it on the air. And it does get used in the planning of future shows, so keep it coming. Just want to be honest with you about the numbers. Uh, before I get to your emails, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, ReadyMadeResources.com. Well, what more can we ask for from a company than for their title or the name of their company to tell us what they do, and then they just go ahead and do it? That's what ready-made resources is. All the resources you need for your prepping. Ready-made, ready-to-go, point-click-and-buy, sent to your house, lightning-fast shipping, great service, great pricing. Check them out today, readymaderesources.com. And again, I mean everything for your prepping. Solar, wind, tactical, practical, gardening, you name it, it's there. Long-term food storage, 12-volt products to go with your solar and wind uh, projects. You name it, they've got it again. Check them out today, readymaderesources.com. Next up today, bulkammo.com. See, if you have a gun and there's no ammo for it, you have an overpriced club. In fact, you know, I was thinking about this when I watched a little snippet of a video that I watched a long time ago. And this video was by a guy named Louis Thoreau. And he's kind of like a f journalist, uh, video journalist that kind of messes with people, funny comedy mixed together. It used to be called Weird Weekends. And he did a show on survivalists, and he went up to Bo Greitz's place in almost heaven, which I, from what I understand isn't there anymore, up in Idaho. And uh, he was talking to this one guy, and he was talking to this guy that lives out there, and he's, you know, got his guns, and he's, you know, setting up this little compound and all, and he goes, uh, he goes, so, uh, you know, tell me about yourself. And he starts telling him about his past. You know, this is going to come back to the sponsor, guys, trust me. And, and the guy, he says, finally, he says, you were a hippie. And the guy goes, yeah, I was a hippie. He goes, so, like, you guys back in the 60s and all, you guys put, you guys put flowers in guns, you know? He goes, what happened to that? And the guy goes, well, you get older and you get smarter. And you learn that it makes more sense to put bullets in guns than flowers. 
And there's a point there, and that is if you don't have bullets for your gun, you got an overpriced club. So if you want to get the best price on ammo you can, get a great selection on ammo, check out BulkAmmo.com. And I talk about lightning-fast shipping, guys. These guys, you order it, it's out the door, man. It takes a little bit more time on your first order because you have to send your ID in. Uh, that's just a legal issue. But once that's done and you're on the books, man, you order, it's on the way. Uh, next up, remember to check out tspcopper.com for some really cool copper rounds. Uh, Ron and Rand Paul, there's a honey, honey one for you guys that are beekeepers. Second Amendment, the real truth about money. Uh, survival podcast, of course. All kinds of cool stuff. The Lakota ones are really awesome looking as well. Check them out today. tspcopper.com. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the member support brigade. If you listen to this show, and when you're done, you think, well, that was worth two dimes. Join the member support brigade because that's that's what it comes out to. Fifty bucks a year comes out about twenty cents an episode, even with a few episodes uh, that I skip when I have to take days off. Comes out to about that, and uh, you'll be supporting the show. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like paramedics. If you email me before you join, I put service discount in the subject line. I will send you a special discount code to thank you for your service. With that, I got the uh, housekeeping wrapped up. I'm ready to get into the first story today. This is actually one that didn't come in by uh, by video. We had a pretty nasty storm here in uh, the Hot Springs area last night. So we're sitting at home, and a storm comes through, and we're pretty sheltered up in the mountains, but there's some winds and all, and I pull up the, you know, the satellite Internet's down, so I pull up on my iPhone and look, and there's a severe... Thunderstorm warning, but no tornado warnings, no, you know, anything real severe. And uh, it kind of blows through, and it's kind of stopped. I mean, it's not really raining anymore, the winds died down, what have you. I take a walk outside with the dogs, there's mist on the mountain, it's cooled down 20 degrees, which means it's like 85. <laughs> so you do the math on that. And I'm feeling pretty good. I walk back in the house, and I sit down, and the lights go flicker, 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 flicker off. Back on, flicker, off, and then they stay off. And I said, well, they're going to be off for a long time. And the wife goes, how do you know? I said, when they just go off, they might come back on pretty quick. When they do that, something's blown up somewhere. So uh, we're, uh, we, we, we thought about dragging all the generator stuff out and everything like that. And we went, you know what, let's call in. First thing you do anyway, call in, get, you know, get it reported to make sure it's not just you. I mean, especially if you live way out at the end of the line. Uh, let's say the line went down one house down from us. Well, there's only two more customers after us on this electrical run. So you call in, and we called in, and they said we're aware of the problem, and there's stuff down everywhere. This Apparently the storm is worse than we thought, and we estimate your repair time to be somewhere between midnight and 6 a.m. Well, you don't have to worry about the freezer and the refrigerator that long. And, you know, we're going to go out in the shed, pull out the generator, pull out all the cords. And I said to my wife, I said, why don't we do this? Let's grab a six-pack of beer. Let's grab some DVDs. Let's put the dogs in the truck. Let's run down to the office, kick the AC on at the office. We've got a couch down there. We've got sleeping pads. we got a redundancy. And we'll just go to the office. He goes, what are the powers off at the office? I said, we'll call our vet. He's across the street. He lives on site. And ask him if his power's on. So we call the vet. The vet says, oh, the power's up fine up here. So we, we cruise on down here. And we got up about 6 o'clock in the morning and went home. The lights are still out. Yeah, they can't be out for much longer, can they? So, uh, well, <laughs> we call in and they say we estimate your repair will be completed by midnight today, which they've already kind of blown their repair window and then set another one that's not very optimistic. 
So at least it's light out now and it's cool in the morning and all. So out comes the generator. So this is why the show went out late today. So we pull the generator out, run some cords. I have a window unit uh, for the uh, the master bedroom. It's really not a window unit. It's actually really cool. It's one of these freestanding ones that moves around. And just the exhaust plugs into the window so you can move it in any room. So that becomes like our cool room. We set that up. We got the refrigerator plugged in. We're running a couple hours at a time. Wife's at home right now with her computer. We got the uh, satellite dish up with the, uh, the, the you know, one satellite receiver that shares the two TVs. Got the TV up in the bedroom. And we got the uh, dish network, not the dish network, the uh, satellite up. Uh, so we, we're, we're just rocking along, uh, with no problems and we'll get our power back tonight. And it's just an example of being prepared, but it's also an example. I think everybody got a wake up call about severe weather with the big outage in the Northeast. It, we're not in that situation. This isn't that big a deal, though. It is a bigger deal than I thought it was. I took a drive through town before I came in today. And, uh, there, it, there's crap everywhere in the streets. There's, there's billboards down. There's, Roofs torn off at a few places. Uh, most of it's already cleaned up by the time I got out and about, but apparently last night a guy told me one of the big, giant, like industrial size air conditioners was in the middle of Central Avenue in downtown, Fort, uh, downtown uh, Hot Springs, blew off one of the roofs. So, I mean, you're talking a pretty big piece of equipment to get blown off. Prospect Avenue has oak trees that are 200 years old down across it. It's blocked off. My road was blocked off. I'd had to go the, that's why I went through town. I had to go the long way around to get in, to get out anyway. Um, and uh, Gulf Gorge is blocked off. So I know these terms don't mean anything, but these are, you know, major roadways that are just completely blocked off from trees being down. And I think it's something that we really need to think about. Now, here's the good news. Um, you guys just got a great seminar on using inverters to charge batteries and, you know, keep a refrigerator uh, cool and stuff like that from Steve Harris. He'll be coming back soon to do a whole show on generators and kind of take that to the next level. But I just wanted to fill you guys in on that today and let you know why the show went out later than normal, especially for a Monday. Uh, and it backed a few things up, too, because by the time I got in, then I had more email backed up than usual. It's already a backed up thing on the weekends, you know, coming in on a Monday. So uh, that's why it went out late today. And we don't really care. Uh, but I thought I'd share it with you because this is an example of the reason we don't care is because we're prepared. If we weren't prepared right now and we had to go, you know, until midnight tonight, and it's going to be, it's, it's like we have a cold front coming through, so it's only going to be 98 degrees. So if we if we had to go through, you know, a, a long 98 degree day, uh, which means it's going to be like 102 because they always lie. Uh, when humidity is terrible now from the uh, from the rain that we got. Uh, it would suck, but since we have our little cool room set up and all, and my wife's probably at home taking a, a nap right now, uh, or uh, or surfing the web, who knows? But uh, I'll see her in a bit when I get out of here today. All right. So next thing I want to talk about, and I didn't want to talk about this one because I'm sick of it. I'm absolutely sick of it. But I actually have, I think, a take on this that you haven't heard from anybody else. And since like a quadrillion of you guys asked me to comment on it, I will. And this is kind of like it's it's done its course now, and there's still some ramblings about it. But it's the whole Chick-fil-A thing. The CEO of Chick-fil-A, what's the guy's name? Um, you can see I really paid a lot of attention to this. Dan something with a girl's last name. Kathy. Dan Kathy, right? So Dan Kathy was on an interview. Now, you got to understand, this guy didn't go out of his way to do this. He was being interviewed. And he was asked about his opinion about the family. And he said his vision of the family was it was a man and a woman. And that's it. And he's opposed to, to gay marriage. And he's, he's not into the, the gay thing at all. And, and that was pretty much it. And you, you got to keep in mind here, 
and I, I bet almost none of you know where I'm going with this unless you read the line in the show notes today. Um, so don't prejudge where you think I'm going with this at all, whether you know either side of what I've ever said about this issue in the past. But my point before I get there is this man never said we wouldn't hire somebody because they were gay. He never said that if somebody walked in and they were obviously a gay couple, we wouldn't serve them. And what's come of this is like mayors of certain towns saying, we don't want you in our town. We don't want you in our town. So uh, a, a whole group on the conservative side mostly, and this is where I think we've fallen down, and it was only the conservative side, went out last week, I think it was Tuesday last week, and like, you know, blew away sales records for Chick-fil-A. Like the, from what I heard on the radio, the lines were like around the corner. There were, you know, thousands of people that normally wouldn't be at their local Chick-fil-A's going there to get waffle fries and chicken sandwiches and all. And I don't eat that crap anymore because I was too fat and now I'm skinny because I stopped eating. I'm like, I'm skinny. I'm, I'm healthy, I would say now. Uh, but I'll tell you what, that basic sandwich they have with the pickle on it, that pickle I don't like. I like to take that pickle off, but it leaves a little bit of pickle flavor. That's an awesome sandwich. That pickle's the secret. And uh, my son says the same thing, by the way. So I like their food. I just don't eat it often because it's not good for me. Uh, too much carbohydrate and things like that. But all these people went out there and went to it. And then, like a couple days later, a whole bunch of gay people were going to go and kiss at Chick-fil-A. They were going to call it Kiss a Chick or something. And that's like their counter-protest. Um, here's where I'm going to go with this. This was an opportunity to break a dichotomy that was completely blown. Completely blown. I don't really have a problem with the people who went to Chick-fil-A to show support. I have a problem for some of them, but I don't want to judge another person's. But I know some of them, their motivation was, this is against gay marriage. But that's not what it should have been about. And I, I think for most people that went, it really wasn't. It was about the right of this man to have his opinion and run his company his way. If he wants to be closed on Sunday, that's his business. If he wants to say that there's certain things that go on in the training of a franchise owner and you have to be okay with that if you want to be an owner, if you want to buy a franchise, that's fine. If they started saying, you know, there's certain things you have to do or agree with to be hired, that would break the law and that would be not cool. But if he wants to run his business that way, fine. Now, here's, here's the big thing. If there was a Chick-fil-A near me on, uh, on Tuesday last week, I probably wouldn't got a sandwich to support the guy. But hold on. Hold on. Um, But I wouldn't because of the way it was being drowned up and because the, the opportunity to break the dichotomy here, and that's what it is. This is an opportunity to break a dichotomy that fell on its face. It is not – this has nothing to do with your stance on, on, on what a family unit is or what gay marriage is or is not or what a marriage should be or should not be. This is about a right of this man to have his opinion. And as long as he's not violating the law, and again, not going out of his way to bash anybody or come down on anybody, I, I just don't think it's anybody's business. And I think for a mayor to do this is disgusting, right? Or any politician that's involved in this, you're disgusting. You disgust me. You absolutely disgust me. And the people that should be the most disgusted with you should be the gay community. If you're, if you're gay, and I know we have some gay listeners, and you know I have no problems with you, and I think you should be able to do whatever you want as long as you don't violate somebody else, no matter who you are, right? So just to be clear on this. But if you are a gay listener, you should be disgusted with the politicians using this issue to play political grab-ass with each other. That's all that it is. And this was the opportunity that was broken. And I'm sorry, but the gay community missed an opportunity here. You missed an incredible opportunity here. What if 
some of the major gay rights advocate uh, groups had come out, said to their members, and made public announcements. On Tuesday, we from, and I don't even know these organizations because it's not my thing, right? Whatever group. We'll be joining our fellow Americans and supporting Chick-fil-A. That's right. We're going to support them. While we vehemently disagree with this man's opinion, he has a right to it. Our groups have been con condemned over and over for what we believe. And we will not stand by while a fellow American who believes anything is put down for what they believe, even if they disagree with us. So we'll be there too. And we won't be doing huge open displays of public affection or anything in some kind of counter-protest. We'll be there to support the man's right to his opinion, to run his business his way, even though we disagree with it. And I know that might have been hard for some people in those groups to do because it's an important issue to them. But this Dan Cathy guy, first of all, does not set public policy and never will. And he's not out doing anything that's going to change public policy. Number two, these issues get handled at the state level because it's not the federal government's place to stick their nose in a marriage. Other than, sooner or later, it's going to come to a decision about whether it's constitutional to ban same-sex marriage. And I'm not going to throw any weight around on that one at all because I don't think it's cut and dry as anybody would like to believe on either side. I'm not sure on that one. But that's the only place the federal government gets to say anything here. So this is your state's issue, and this is an issue you have to take up with your state. But I want you to think about what would have happened in America had major gay rights uh, uh, advocates done what I just said. I'll tell you what would have happened. There are an entire group of people that are in the middle on this issue. They just don't know what to think. They have a, a, a pull on them that just says, this just doesn't seem right, and they have another pull on them that says, but is it my business or not? When you have a dichotomy, those people just gravitate toward whatever the people around them are doing. So if they're more in touch with, with, with one group, they go that way and they go to the other. Because it's a dichotomy, that's the whole point. That's the whole point, you must be for or against. When people ask me, my opinion is, here's my real opinion. I don't care because it's not my business what you and your significant other, regardless of which sex both of you are, do. As long as you don't harm me or anybody else, I don't care. And I don't think the government should be involved at all. But since the government is involved, and since that's the system that we're in, then we all have to play by the rules of that system. And if you're for one side of that issue, then you have to go out and you have to say what you mean, mean what you say, be consistent in your actions, and work to further your agenda on either side of the issue. And we should be able, in this day and age... To have that be the case with mutual respect for each other. And I think the gay community blew it. Absolutely blew a chance to make a significant impact in the minds of millions and millions of Americans to make them just a little bit more open-minded. Because you went to the other side of the economy. And I know not everybody did, but there's a lot of it. And I didn't see anybody come out and, and do what I just said. And, it's, and, and this is, again... The politicians that are using this on either side of the issue, either side, you sicken me. You absolutely sicken me to take this issue and use it to try to gain political favor. And I hope, no matter which side of the issue you are on, if you are using this, it blows up, 
in your freaking face because that's what should happen. And the big reason I went ahead and covered this, even though I didn't want to today, because this just doesn't seem like any kind of self-sufficient survival topic for me on the surface, is because we all need to think about this in the future. Sooner or later, somebody's going to do something like this again. And you're, whatever side of this issue on, you're going to be on the other side of the next one. And you need to think about this. And if it's not actually trying to force the belief on somebody else, but simply somebody else having the opinion and standing up for the person with the opinion, even if that opinion is exactly the opposite of your opinion, you should be the first person to stand up for that other individual's right to that opinion. And folks, that is a survival topic because that dichotomy is how they've taken our liberty, taken our freedom, and taxed us and put us at odds with each other while they freaking dance and fiddle and fart around And get away with freaking, you know, the intellectual murder of our people. That's what, that's what these people are actually doing. They're dumbing you down to the point where you, it's like intellectual murder. You know, where, where people know which Cardassian had an ass implant, but they don't know the most basic components of their civil liberties and where their rights actually come from and what the role of the Constitution in those rights actually are. But they know which one, which one of the Cardassian sisters had the most recent ass implant. If that's not intellectual murder, I don't know what is. So think about that the next time one of these hot-button issues come up. And think about the fact that unless it's being forced on another person, we all have a right to our opinion. And being divided on opinions versus on issues is a real big part of the problem we have in America today. Right, here's a gun question. Uh, this will be a, a good, quick, easy one here because I'm going to give an answer most people probably wouldn't expect. So I'm in the market for a firearm. I'm leaning towards a revolver. Could you give me an opinion on what brand or caliber of revolver would be the best value? I'm on a budget, so I don't want to spend over $400. What would you buy? Thanks. I hope to hear your suggestions. Uh, Zach from the Indy area, a.k.a. the belly of the beast. Okay, so here's what I'm going to tell you. Uh, number one, uh, on caliber, I do have an opinion, but it's not an all or nothing opinion. And that is my go-to caliber for a revolver would be a 357 Magnum. Uh, you can shoot and practice with uh, 38 Special. Uh, you can load higher-end rounds for self-defense purposes. Uh, there's plenty of them out there available in the $400 range. Some of them you might end up spending a little bit more for, like $420 or so, and you should be willing to do that if, if it works a lot better for you. Um, I would probably stay away from like the titanium frames and things like that, unless this is going to be a carry gun. If this is going to be an in-the-home gun mainly, uh, I would look to a heavier frame because it's going to be easier to shoot. And I wouldn't look for the little snub noses and stuff like that. I would look for you know a standard like a four-inch uh, barrel revolver. If it's a carry gun, I would look to go hammerless. Uh, so I'd, I'd want one with no hammer to snag, or at least a low-profile uh, hammer. Where it's it's just like a, there's not the old style uh, horn hammer, but it's the low flush uh, hammer. And I would look to go into some of the titanium frame stuff or something like that, the light frames, five round versus six round, whatever saves weight and creates a, a slimmer profile. And that would be my personal preference. Uh, as far as what brand, okay, I'm going to put it to you this way. There's nobody that makes a shitty revolver today. There just isn't. Uh, maybe some junk stuff uh, that's out there if you really look for it, but... I mean, even people that have been given a bad rap, like, you know, like, uh, who am I thinking of? Like Taurus, uh, and uh, I believe Rossi makes a revolver. Yeah, and theirs is pretty solid. So I, I wouldn't shy away from just about anything from a mainstream manufacturer today. But 
My honest answer for anybody asking this question is if I happen to like, you know, uh, the, uh, let's say the uh, Smith & Wesson 442, which uh, if you're going to go with Smith & Wesson on this for a carry gun and you want to spend around $400, bucks, you are probably going to have to drop down to a 38 Special and, and not go with the 357. But uh, as far as a carry gun, if you're going to carry a revolver, the, uh, the 442 is a great gun. Uh, it's lightweight. It's 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 a small frame revolver. It'll carry beautifully. It sells, I think, for about four hundred bucks. Street price retails like four fifty, four sixty, something like that. Uh, and I like that gun. It doesn't mean you're going to like it. So anybody that's really asking this question, my best advice for you is to find a gun range where they'll let you rent guns and go into that gun range and talk to the owner of the gun range and say, I'm looking for a gun like this. Which guns do you have that, you know, so I'm looking for a revolver. I'm looking for a compact revolver. I'm looking for a compact revolver to carry. I'm looking for like 38 or a 357. Uh, I want it to be hammerless or I want it to have a low profile hammer or I don't care if it has a hammer or whatever. Uh, I want it for the home and I, I want, you know, I want a full, more of a full size or medium frame. I want, this is kind of the, 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 the bookends around what I want. What do you have like that or similar to that, uh, that I can rent from you to shoot? And even if he's going to, like, one of the guns you can rent, and usually they're dirt cheap to rent, right, is going to be a gun that's like an $800 gun, don't be afraid to shoot it, right? And then go into the range and shoot. Shoot these weapons before, try before you buy. And then when you find the one or two you like the best, go back to the owner of the range. They're usually a seller of firearms as well, right? And say, okay, I like these. And if one of them happens to be like an $1,100 gun and you don't have that kind of money, say, what do you have that's the closest to this? That's in, you know, more into my price range and work it out that way. I think that's a far better way than to buy a gun just because Jack Spierko says it's a good gun, especially with handguns. If you ask me for a good, uh, 22 rifle, if you want a bolt action, buy a Marlin, you want a semi auto, buy either a Marlin model 60, uh, or a Ruger 1022, and you're probably better off with a 1022 due to external, you know, uh, external magazines, uh, and, and what have you. Um, but either one would be fine. And I, I'm fine with that recommendation. Handguns are much more personal especially carry guns. So I think it's important that we get familiar with how they op you know, how do we open that cylinder? How easy is it? If you have small hands, does this work? If you have big hands, does it work? Is it a, is the gun too big or too small for you to shoot comfortably? Um all of these things play in. So I say find a local range, go rent some guns and have a have a fun day at the range and then have a conversation. And if you find that you really find something that fits you perfectly and you're like this is what I want and you had a budget of 300 or 400 and it's 500 or 600 it's going to cost you more and you can't find a lower cost gun that you feel is good about save the money and buy the better gun guns are a place to see as an investment they're not something you buy and, and the money goes away now those of us that get a little bit crazy sometimes and have a collection and we have guns that we may never shoot that are just in our collection they're still investments but it can really get to be like any collection hobby, whether it's wine or baseball cards or whatever people collect, right? People can get ham radio gear. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? So that, there's that case. But when it comes to a carry gun, a shotgun, 
a, a rifle, a center fire rifle, a, a rifle that's more of a tactical rifle, a basic battery, a 22, a 22 handgun. These are investments, and they're investments that not only will you get a lot of utility out of, they're not only investments that may protect your family, save your life, or put food on the table, they're investments that you'll hand down to, to you know, a child someday, or maybe a grandchild. And they're a great way to preserve the Second Amendment. If I have to invest 20% more to do it in the way that fits me best, I'm willing to do that, and I suggest that you should be too. Here's a real quick one for you, and this is where I went off on a rant last week about how water doesn't go bad if it's in storage unless there's something in it to make it go bad or it's exposed to something that can make it go bad. That All it does is start to taste funny because it tastes like the container. Remember that? And somebody was asking about a special super-duper formula to make your water last longer than bleach. Uh, this comes in from Bill. And Bill's an awesome guy, by the way, that's uh, supported a lot of the causes we've uh, we've taken up, like Jan Klein and some other things. So thank you for your support in the past on stuff like that, Bill. Uh, but Bill says, in podcast 949, you addressed a question about water going bad. The question involved someone asking about a 5.25% solution of sodium hypochlorite and 94.75% water being sold for extended water preservation. That is exactly the old formula for Clorox bleach. Let me read it again. That is exactly the old formula for Clorox bleach. The Clorox formula being sold currently is 6% sodium hypochlorite and 96% water. So this stuff is 94.75% sodium hypochlorite. And uh, that is uh, the old formula for Clorox. And the new formula is, is uh, or not, it's 5.25% of the chemical, and current bleach has 6%. So it's pretty much nuts and bolts the same. So, uh, yeah, and he says, to refer to a quote by one of your favorite people, it's just marketing. He, he asked the listeners to do their research. So thank you for that, Bill. So when you get these special super-duper water extenders, they're probably just uh, bleach. Uh, let's take another one. Here's a question from Jared. I wonder if this is the Jared that goes to Subway. I don't think so, honestly. Uh, new listener, just started learning, just started to learn about prepping, but I had a question I hadn't heard about for a while. So, uh, what's your opinion on becoming proficient with older technology, specifically weaponry, that doesn't depend on ammo and isn't re reusable or bladed weapons? If your gun breaks, is stolen, lost, runs out of ammo, what weapon would you recommend becoming proficient with as backup? Bows, crossbows, slingshots, daggers, knives, throwing knives, cathrops, spears are all viable weapons that are often overlooked when prepping. What's the value of becoming proficient and making use of these in case of loss of your primary weapon? Thanks for your time and consideration. Um, all of these weapons are really useful weapons. They're fun to learn and experiment with, and they have their place, and they've had their places throughout history. Some of them won't really work in today's modern world because walking around with a spear is just not cool nor permitted in most places, nor a sword or things like that. Bows and crossbows are cool. I have a show coming for you this week on a guy that's a bow shooter and actually fairly new to archery. And I thought it was cool having him on because his, his perspective's not like the super 20-year expert archer perspective. It's the relatively new shooter, which a lot of you guys are going through. So I thought it was cool to have him on, a young guy. I uh, just got back from military service, and it's kind of taken up the sport. So I'll have him on for you. And he's looking, he's more of a, you know, a modern archer shooting compound bows with releases and all that. Um, but 
this is the this is the reality of all this stuff. With the exception of the knife, and only in the hands of a skilled person, and only in certain environments, there's a reason all of these things are now considered archaic, and uh, people use firearms versus these implements. And that is because they're great until the other guy has a gun. Especially when the other guy has a gun and he's like 50 feet or more away, and that gun's a rifle and there's cover and concealment to work with. You've got a real problem unless you're an absolute expert in a self-defense situation. So they're not so much a self-defense tool. I am a big believer in preserving our skills and our traditions, and I think they fill a role for that. I think from a bushcraft uh, perspective, toward a primitive skills survival perspective, toward being able to get out and live off the land, I think they're extensively extensively valuable, especially things like learning to use traps, I think are even more valuable. But bows, crossbows, and slingshots, highly, highly valuable. I think there's some real value in learning to use a knife for defense, but I think that the reality is um, there's, there's a tendency with a lot of people that do knife training that most of the things that they train a student to be able to do with a knife would be illegal unless the guy that you were, you know, defending yourself with had a gun. Or maybe if he had a knife too, right? There's these hidden techniques and all. And the knife is ideally the, the tool of the assassin. It, it really is. It, it, it's for the person that wants to take somebody out quietly, and that's not self-defense, right? But when all else fails, it's still there. Uh, the same thing with, like, crossbows. Um, crossbows to me do have a defensive uh, capability. They definitely do. Um, they may be a defensive capability for people that aren't allowed to own firearms, uh, as, as, as well as you know, black powder may fill that void. There's places where you can't own a handgun, but you can own a black powder revolver. Well, that's six shots. Now, it's, it's not going to take on an AR at 100 yards, but that's not generally what you're looking at in defense anyway. So I think these things have some defensive purposes. But I think where they excel the most are for taking game. And I think things like Really high-powered slingshots, and some of the things that are being done with slingshots now are pretty awesome. There's this bald guy that's like, I don't know if he's from Belarus or Romania or Poland or something, uh, on YouTube. I'll see if I can find a channel for you today. But he builds these, like, slingshot guns and knife slingshot guns, and they shoot these big steel balls and knives and stuff. And it's pretty cool, some of the stuff I've seen him do. Um, so I think there's some advantage there toward being able to, especially, say, in a long-term crisis situation, take game without a lot of noise. But even there, in many ways, this stuff is for fun and tradition and skill development. Because let's face it, if you learn to shoot rabbits with a slingshot and you get into a place where you actually need rabbits to survive and you have a .22, you're going to be a better rabbit hunter. And I think they're mostly, not all, but mostly more for that. Until such time as nobody has a gun. As long as there's a gun, there's a reason that armies don't send soldiers out with lances on the back of horses anymore. By the way, they did that. They did that in World War One. And if I'm not mistaken, a lot of the, you know, the Polak jokes, a lot of that has to do with, I think there was a Polish cavalry at one time that charged some tanks. And that, that might, or was it a, yeah, I think so. And that might have been because 
They were told the, the tanks were made out of wood or cardboard because of mock-up tanks that were, I don't remember exactly, but all I know is when they sent, you know, cavalry with lances into World War I, when the machine gun had been invented, it didn't work out very well. So these primitive weapons are a great tradition, they're a great skill, they're a great skill enhancer, and they may have their place, but in the end, nothing beats modern firearms. And if you're going to look at archery gear, nothing really beats modern archery gear. Now, I'm not saying that there's no place for the longbow or the recurve or what have you, and there is. And I, I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for traditional archers, but uh, I, I love it, though, when the traditional archer says something. I can see your compound bow, and they're like, oh, I'm a traditional archer. I, I, I believe in primitive hunting and giving the animal a chance. And I'm like, primitive hunting? Really? You know how primitive hunters hunted? They would find a cliff. They would get the whole tribe, and they would run the animals off a freaking cliff. Or if they had animals penned up in an area, they would set fire to it and chase them out. Right? Primitive hunters did things that would be highly, highly illegal today. It's, 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 it's fine to say you're preserving the tradition, but don't try to pretend that the, uh, the noble Native American or the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the first, uh, you know, hunter gatherers in Europe, you know, had this huge ethical code about exactly how you killed a deer or a buffalo or whatever. They didn't care how they got it done because they needed it to eat to survive. And if somebody had put a 3006 in their hand, man, they would have used it quick. Great question, though. Let's, uh, let's take another one. Now, uh, this next one's going to pull out some of your hearts. Um, I know it did for me. Um, and I don't really have a good answer at the end of this, but I do think it's something that we need to acknowledge uh, because especially those of us that are more fiscally conservative, more libertarian-minded, uh, that type of thing, we get called out as being heartless and not caring, and I, I don't think that we are. I think we're very charitable people. Uh, but this is, this is the state of America today. This comes from Nathan. Nathan said, I just wanted to share my experience from tonight. You always talk about community. Here's my story about a lack of community. It's a downer. I don't know if you could use this or not, but I wanted to share. I went to Walmart for Advil. And, of course, I left with more stuff than I planned. All while complaining and judging in my head about the 1030 Walmart crowd. I think we all know what he's talking about, about the 1030 Walmart crowd. As I'm walking to my car, a little girl of no more than seven or eight is running towards me from across the far end of the lot. Mr. Mr., we don't have enough money for the bus. We need $3 to get home. Of course I'm skeptical at first, as I always am about giving money to strangers. I could see her mom moving out of the darkness under the street light near the bus stop. She had a slight limp in her walk. The little girl finally reached me, now breathless, repeated her story. She had little squirrel cheeks and scraggly curly hair. I thought it would be okay to help, but I rarely have cash in my wallet. Everything is electronic. Then I remembered I had a $10 bill. I needed cash for laundry at the hotel. My first thoughts, I don't have change for a 10. Second thoughts, neither do they. I've got everything I could possibly need and more, and these people are trying to catch a bus in the Walmart parking lot at 11 p.m., and I think about, and th and, and think about if, I have to, if I have correct change or not. I came to my senses and realized I needed the $10 much more than I needed. I gave the little girl the $10 bill, which she didn't even look at. I told her to go give it to her mom and tell her not to worry about it. She looked at me with a huge grin and threw her arms around me with the biggest hug a little girl like that could muster. If she only knew the thought process that went through my mind in the preceding seconds. At 10.45 in a dark parking lot, I realized I am completely disconnected from humanity. I have a good job for which I should be grateful. I want for nothing, yet something isn't right. This little girl doesn't have money for a bus ride. It's so completely innocent 
and gave a perfect stranger a hug in a dark parking lot. A hug, her hug, should have been joyous. It made me sick to my stomach. I drove away in my company-paid car. And it sounds to me like this was a legitimate need, and the individual that made the decision to give this person the money probably helped out and didn't empower somebody that's a drug user or something like that. There's no way to ever know. And whenever I'm confronted, if I have any doubt whatsoever that uh, that if I you know if I have any belief whatsoever that it's possible the person really needs help, I usually help them out. I, I usually will. But there's people I won't. And I think to be honest about a story like this, we have to look at the other side of the equation. So here's two stories that I know of that look very much like this and, and are not. And one involves kids. In Panama, there were these two little boys. They're always dirty looking. And they hung out at one of the gates in one of the bases. And, you know, you first get there and these kids are like, Migo, do you have a dollar? You know, and you look at these kids and you go, freaking dollar, dude. I have everything I can. You're in the military. There's nothing I absolutely need that I don't have provided for me, especially when you're living in the barracks and you're deployed overseas. You, you know, a dollar, frick. Here's two bucks, you know. And the next day you see them and they want a dollar again. And you're like, I just gave you a dollar, but here's another dollar. And then somebody, you know, comes to you and says, look, man, I've been here two years. And these kids are here every day. And, and, and check this out. If you come here about the time the bus arrives, all those dirty clothes that they wear, the same clothes every day, they keep under a board over there. And what they do is they come here, and they take their nice clothes off, and they put those dirty clothes on, and they, they, they literally kind of scroll themselves up. They beg all day. When they get enough money, they feel like they've, they've made their money for the day. They go over to the, the, the there's like a kind of like a fountain thing there. They clean up as best they can. They put their good clothes back on, and they wait for the bus, and they go back to Panama City. This is their job. They're professional panhandlers. All right, here's another one. One day uh, in, in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, I guess it's really Cannondale, I guess, area, I-20, there's a liquor store called Majestic Liquors. We had some people coming over. We we're going to do some cocktails and things like that, so I go by the place to pick up some a couple bottles of stuff. And I pull up this place. You have to make a U-turn and go back around the other side of the highway. Guy standing there, dirty as all get out. Sign will work for food, need money, help me out, God bless, all that stuff on his sign, you know. Got a dog with him. Looks like, you know, doesn't say it, but really kind of looks like like a like a disabled vet that's kind of lost it. You know, because he's got the, it's cold out now, and he's got the old, you know, olive drab uh, M65 field jacket on. You know, he's got the beard, he just looks like a guy that was probably in Vietnam or something like that. You know, because he looks like he's about 60 years old. And you're thinking, and a dog is like a real selling point, too. I don't know about you, but when I see people with a dog, too, and I think, well, they're trying to figure out a dog, too, and they care about the, and, you know, why would you try to feed a dog? And, well, you know, it's the only thing he has. And But my gut on this one said, no, 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 no. No, this guy, no. So I go around in Majestic Liquors, and there was a, a, a scotch that I was looking for. It was one of these things where they got to go get it for you because they don't put it out because a very, very good friend was coming over. You have to be a good friend for certain certain single malts. So the guy goes again. So it takes me a while is my point. And I actually know the guy that runs the place. So we sit there and we talk for a bit. And when I finally get what I want and get done talking to my friend and get in line, who's in front of me in line? This guy. And his dog is sitting outside tied to the pole. And he leaves with a box full of stuff. I don't mean like he got his fit to go lay up in a hole and that's bad enough. I mean, he lives with, leaves with a whole bunch of stuff. And I said to the girl after he left, I said, he was just over there. He, she goes, oh, he, yeah, him. He's a regular here. So I think that there's two sides to this. 
And I think that the people that, that just use it as like that's their profession really hurt the people. Because I know I've had the whole, we need $3 for gas. We need to buy $3 to get on a bus. I've heard it. And $3 for some reason seems like a number that's used a lot of times. I don't know if it's, it's an odd number, a weird number, or whatever. And, you know, I've, I've seen like, I remember this one time I saw this girl. She looked like she was crying. Her car sitting, you know, like at the pump, you know, and... She wants three bucks, and I'm like, really, that's enough to get home? She goes, well, I don't know. I, I, I just, whatever you can spare. And I said, well, I don't have any cash, but I got my credit card. Let's, 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 let's put ten bucks in your card for you. And you could tell her right away that, like, that's not what she really wanted. She's like, oh, well, uh, I really need the money. I thought you needed it for gas. Well, I just got some for gas. Now I need some and Okay, no, we're done, right? You know, and so... I don't know, but there is no doubt in my mind that there's a reason for a man to feel sick to his stomach when a seven-year-old girl hugs a stranger in a dark parking lot in a Walmart. Whether that mother had trained that little girl to do that and it was a panhandling thing, or whether it was a legitimate need, I don't know. But I know that there's a deep hole in a society that that little girl's out there hugging a stranger. And I know some of you may be very judgmental on the mother and say, how would you let your daughter, maybe she was raised that way herself. So I think a lot of the bigotry, the hatred, the stigmas, the baggage that we carry as human beings today, in many cases it was handed down to us by our parents and their parents. And it's taken a long time to break away from a lot of things. Let me tell you something. Uh, people that are, you know, sensitive about racism today, man, you don't remember even the 1980s. If you, I mean, if you think there's any real problems left, I mean, there's, there's nothing even compared to the 1980s. You know, I went to school in the 80s in Florida. Uh, they were busing at the time because there weren't enough, there wasn't enough, uh, interracial in schools according to the state. So the state is going to fix the problem by taking children that live two hours away by bus. It's probably an hour, but by the time buses pick kids up and all. So these kids spend, you know, four hours a day on a bus to come to a school with kids that they don't know because those kids are white. And everybody knows this is why this is happening. And um, there was a lot of animosity at the schools between, and it was like two buses of kids that came in from, from this other part of, of the city. And... They didn't like us, and we didn't like them, just to be completely honest. And it was because, mainly, on both sides, our parents had taught us negative viewpoints. And then those negative viewpoints were uh, entrenched by the actions of both sides in the schools because they had animosity towards each other. They had an attitude toward each other, and they ha we all had our own cliques. And I think that a lot of people from my generation really struggled with letting go of that. Now, I'll tell you what fixed me was joining the Army. When I joined the Army, all of that crap went out the window. And I learned to see everybody as the same. But it took that. Now, that tells you right there, it's not because I was a bad person. It's not because I was a racist, evil bastard at heart. It was because this was the society that I grew up in what I learned. And we need to understand that a lot of these people in these poverty-stricken situations, remain in these poverty-stricken situations because they've been taught to remain in these poverty-stricken situations. They've been taught that this is their life. And it's very hard to break that. I mean, there's plenty of you guys out there that you have good incomes and good lives and all, but it's very hard. you want to start a business, it's very hard for you to do it because you have to break the belief that you need somebody else 
So if it's hard for you to do that, or there's, I guarantee you any of you, you can think at some point in your life where you had to break away from a previous belief, then, then to understand how hard it is for a child that grows up like this little girl, by the time they're 18, to understand that they can break away from this belief. They go to a po impoverished school. You know, and they don't get as good an education as, as the kid over in the good school district. They really don't. You know, it doesn't mean they get a bad education. It doesn't mean the teachers completely suck or anything. But it's not as good because everybody around them is in this same mindset. So it's a difficult problem. And you know, but then when you start to think, well, you know, maybe we do need to do more from a governmental standpoint. And then you realize this is what 16 trillion dollars bought us, guys. It's not even 16 trillion. It's more like 32 trillion. It was $16 trillion we didn't have. We spent about twice as much as we have. So $16 trillion worth of debt and social programs got us here. And a big reason that people stay in this condition is because their lives have been made relatively, not great, but relatively comfortable in many instances. Government provided housing, government provided health care, etc. And you have to ask yourself, How does a mother with her daughter end up at a bus stop at 10.30 and not have the $3 to get back home? Didn't you know you needed the $3 to get back home? And then you say, well, maybe they needed food. Well, maybe they did. And maybe you made a choice to spend it. So where did you think you were going to get the $3? So is this a regular occurrence? Has this little girl, again, been trained to do this? But we have to accept it's not her fault if she has. And what kind of adult will she be? And what's the right answer? Give her the three bucks or be a heartless bastard and turn your back on her? I don't think I could. But I don't know what the right answer is. But yeah, this is about lack of community. And this is exactly what your government wants. That's the big thing I want you to understand because I'm big on trying to get you guys to break the economy. I really am. You know, I had a great dinner with a couple that came to Arlington. Uh, for the, the, the convention center for the uh, thing. And they said, basically, they have now accepted the fact that I'm right. Mitt Romney's a freaking Democrat. He's a Democrat calling himself a Republican. And she, and she said to me, but what choice do we have? And I said, you don't have one. You don't have a choice. The answer's not in government. It never was. It never will be. But if we want to say that, then we all need to be more active in providing actual solutions for people like the people described in this email. But solutions that also hold them accountable. Because one thing private sector charities of any form can do is say we will help you, but then you need to do these things to earn our continued help. But as individuals, I say if you really think a person's in need and you don't need it, yeah, giving it away is always the right answer. And I don't care whether you write a check to a charity or hand a $10 bill to a homeless person. One thing that we need to do with our giving, if we're going to be genuine in our giving, is even when we have that, I don't know about this, but this time I'm going to do it, the second you let go of that money, it is gone. Trust God, the universe, or however you describe that energy force to eventually do good with what you've done. In short, believe in karma. And I've seen karma work. Uh, I see karma work every day because of this show. So when you have any belief whatsoever the person really needs help, I say give. But when you know the person's gaming the system, I think all you're doing is entrenching them in that position. I don't think you're doing them any favors. Uh, let's take another one. 
Uh, next up, I want to uh, recant something that I said in the past because I said it in error. It was a story that I was very familiar with uh, a long time ago, about a year ago, because it was hot, that uh, Boeing was trying to open up a plant in either North or South Carolina is where it was. And uh, the unions tried to shut it down and prevent them from opening that plant because it's a right-to-work state and they wouldn't have a union there. And uh, the Justice Department or whatever was on their back and uh, threatening them and they had a lawsuit going and on and on and on. And this was in regards to Airbus building a plant in uh, I think Missouri or Mississippi, Missouri, I think, uh, wherever it is in uh, the South. I mentioned this about Boeing trying to open it up. And, and my understanding was that they had been prevented from opening the plant. I've been contacted by several people that say eventually the uh, National Labor Relations Board dropped it, the case. They gave up on it and, and let it go. And Boeing's plant has opened in South Carolina. Those jobs did happen. And when I said that they were prevented from opening that plant, I was in error. So when I screw something up, I always try to make it right. So there you go. Uh, Boeing does have a plant in South Carolina. The jobs did get created. Uh, but I wasn't wrong about the fact that the government, in conjunction with the unions, did try to prevent it. And you have to ask yourself, why the hell would anybody do such a thing? I mean, seriously, it's just a stupid thing. We're in the middle of a recession, and these are good, high-paying jobs uh, in an area of the country that had every right to compete for Boeing's business and did a good job of competing. So uh, there's a correction, uh, but the sentiment is still there. Uh, the unions and the government together tried to prevent it from happening, but when push came to shove, uh, I think they really saw that there was no path to winning uh, a case, so they backed off. Uh, completely unrelated, this comes from Brian. Brian says, hey, I have really enjoyed the podcast on unusual edible plants to grow for the home garden. want to tell you I am growing the holist pumpkin called khaki. It's growing very well in five to seven gallon buckets. The squash bag bugs are so bad here in Albuquerque. I don't even grow summer squash anymore. I have a recipe for you because of it. Take one large softball-sized immature green khaki or other green winter squash. Green pumpkin works great. Dice, then saute with one half to one cup of hot green chili. Hatch Big Jim is what I use. One onion, one cup of corn. When finished cooking, add one half cup of cheese of any kind. Cheddar is great. A white Mexican cheese is more traditional can add a little milk to stir and combine. This is a traditional dish here in New Mexico called calabacitas. The wife and kids think I am amazing for my ability to grow zucchini in this climate. I'm not sure this recipe works with your paleo diet or not, but just wanted to let you know how versatile green water squash and pumpkins are. Thanks, Jack. Love the show. God bless. Brian. Um, I actually never really thought about eating green winter squashes like before they're fully developed. And I guess that makes sense because I like to grow Trombuccino zucchini, which basically that's what you're doing. You're eating them as a green zucchini, but if you let them go, they're more like kind of this oblong, weird-shaped pumpkin squash thing, more like a winter squash. So I'm going to have to try eating some green uh, winter squash. Never have done it before. Most of what I have growing is probably produced most of what's going to produce I do have a couple pumpkin squashes hanging off the fence in the backyard that are still pretty small that came from some seeds from a squash that uh, Marjorie Wildcraft gave me. 
And I don't know what this friggin' squash is. She called it a pumpkin squash and, and nothing more than a pumpkin squash. And uh, I've looked in all different kinds of pictures, and I've seen, seen, seen things that are similar to it, but I've not found anything that I can go, that is the same you know, animal, so to speak. Uh, so maybe I'll try cutting one of those up. So I'm going to give you the guys the recipe one more time because uh, I'm not going to write this one down in the show notes for you. Take one softball-sized immature green khaki or other green winter squash. Green pumpkin works great. Dice it, then saute with one half to one cup of hot green chili, one onion, one cup of corn, and when finished cooking, add one half cup of cheese of any kind. Cheddar's great. A white Mexican cheese is more traditional. Then add a little bit of milk and stir to combine if you need the milk. And again, it is called cabalacitas uh, in uh, in the New Mexico area. So there's a little uh, recipe for you thrown in today. All right, here's a uh, more of a gardening permaculture question. Jack, I have three multi-fruit trees. They're in half whiskey barrels for a few years now. One's been in a barrel for four years. They're stone fruit, mostly plums. I was wondering if I can plant them in the ground or if the roots are ruined from circling. Also, what time of year should I plant them? I live in California, so frost really isn't a problem. Thanks in advance, advance for your advice. Um, okay, here's the deal. It's not that they're ruined. It's that they probably have really bad circling roots. And all you have to do to fix this problem is get yourself, get, get them out of the barrels, clean as much dirt off as you can, and get yourself a big tub and soak them in water and get all the dirt off the roots till they're bare roots. You can see what you're working with. Straighten out any of the roots that you can, and any roots that you really can't straighten out that are, that are really circling, prune them off, and make sure this tree is really well hydrated from being soaked, and then plant into the ground and water well, and it will be fine. You can do this anytime you want to. You can do this in the spring, you can do this in the summer, you can do this in the fall, but the fall would be the best time, especially if the trees are going to go dormant for you. After they go dormant, uh, would be a great time to do this. And make sure you water them through their dormant period in the winter as you need to, and uh, you should have really great results in the springs. That's really an easy one. For those that don't know, the big problem here, and this is true when you go down to like Home Depot or Lowe's or a local nursery or anything, and you buy trees that are in a pot, even if they're in a small pot, it might even be worse. You've got to get roots that are traveling in a circle out of that circular pattern. What happens is, especially the inner circles, those roots stay like that. And they get thicker and bigger and stronger over the years. And eventually they form a ring. And eventually the tree's trunk grows out to the diameter of that ring. And the tree can literally choke itself to death. Underneath the bark of a tree is what's called the cambium. And the cambium is only a few millimeters thick. And this is where all of the nutrient and water travel up and down the trunk of the tree. And if you take a tree, for instance, and you take a saw and you cut a, a, a groove all the way around the tree through the cambium, that tree will die. Unless it, you know, if certain trees are, have pretty good habit of healing themselves and things like that, but many times that tree will die. Or if you wrap a thick piece of wire around it, and you've ever seen a tree with wire grown into it, if it goes all the way around it and the tree's not capable in some way of growing back over the wire or what have you, the tree will die. So when the roots do this, the same thing happens, generally just a few inches under the ground. And what people, I don't think, get in their head about a tree is the tree doesn't go to the ground and then the roots go straight out. There's a huge tap root, which is basically a continuation of the trunk for a time under the surface. So that's why this is a, an important issue to, uh, to, to take care of whenever we're planting a container-grown tree. I think we'll take just one more today. Brent, uh, Brent up in Prince, Ed Prince Edward Island says to me, 
the audit the Fed bill passed, what does that mean for silver and gold? Your thoughts on now that the bill has passed, will that put upward pressure on the two metals? What is the window to buy at a good price closing? Um, I don't think audit the Fed will have anything to do with gold and silver prices anytime soon because I don't think audit the Fed's going anywhere. Uh, audit the Fed passed the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, the representative branch of Congress, And then they now basically throw it over the fence to the Senate where Mr. Reed, as I discussed last week, has no interest in doing it now, even though he seemed to think it was a good idea just a few years ago. And I gave you Uncle Jack's lesson in bullshit. So I don't think audit the Fed goes anywhere now. I think it's just like, okay, the House did it. Now, if the Republicans take the Senate, will there be any pressure to you know take this issue up? I don't think so. I mean, it'll be up to Rand over in the Senate, who, who seems to be pretty much in favor of it. And uh, I'd like to see it happen. Uh, I'd like to see it happen just so that I think people would then become aware of what's actually going on. And maybe that would help wake more people up. But I, I don't think that um, you need to worry about gold and silver prices being affected by the audit the Fed bill at this point. Until at least it, it, it gets into some level of a you know potential for a vote in the Senate, I, I don't think you need to worry about. It. I also think that right now, because of special rules or something, again I don't I didn't dig deep enough to figure out what this is all about, but it, it, in some way it's it's based on this: the Senate and the House with the the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 gave this power to the Federal Reserve. And set this system into place. And to now change it doesn't require a 50% vote. It requires a 66% vote, a two-thirds vote, kind of like ratifying a treaty or something like that. So I think even if the Senate brought it to a vote, I don't know that they have 66 senators over there uh, to vote this thing uh, up to the, the ass clown in chief. And I don't think the ass clown in chief would sign it if he did. Now, here's a, here's a question. Normally... When Congress and the Senate, you know, the House and the Senate, some people got on me about that, like, you don't know what I'm talking about or something. When the congressmen and the senators both pass a bill and they send it to the president, there's, there's three things that can happen. The, or actually four. The president can sign the bill into law. That's the one we're most familiar with. Two, the president can do nothing. If the president does nothing, and I don't remember the exact period of time, but after if it's 30 days or 60 days, whatever it is, If the president does nothing, the bill becomes law without presidential approval. It's kind of like a vote of the president basically saying no contest. I'm not endorsing it, and I'm not repealing it. I'm letting it go. That's another thing that could happen. A third thing that could happen is the president can veto it. Veto. No, no law. I am vetoing this bill, and he sends it back to the House and the Senate. At that point, the House and the Senate have a fourth option. They can either go, we're defeated, or they can put it back through. And with a 66% vote after a veto, it doesn't matter if it was before or after, with a 66% vote after the veto, the bill becomes law in, in spite of the president's veto. Now, given that they needed a 66% vote in the Senate in the first place, What does that mean? Would it go back or would it be? I, I don't know. So that's an interesting subject. But in any event, I wouldn't go out and buy a bunch of gold and silver right now because of Audit the Fed. There's a lot of other reasons I might consider upping my position there. But Audit the Fed is not one of them. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. See,
Nobody up there cares. 